Well, good morning again. One of the most common words in our um, in our society, you hear it all the time, every day, um, in every form of media, is the word love. But what does the word love mean? Have you thought about it? If you go to uh, various sources, you'll find various definitions of love. So I decided I was going to do precisely that. The first place, of course, we always look is Wikipedia. And so here is love according to Wikipedia. Love is a variety of feelings, states, and attitudes that range from personal affection to pleasure. That's the all-knowing Wikipedia. You might want to try a dictionary. The dictionary has multiple definitions of love. The first one is a strong affection for another. And the fourth definition is unselfish loyalty and benevolent concern for the good of another. That's pretty good. How about philosophy? One of the best-known philosophers of all of human history is Aristotle, and here's how he defined it. Love is composed of a single soul inhabiting two bodies. Think about that for a while. Um, well, let's turn to religion. And this is Buddha, Gautama Buddha, of course, the founder of Buddhism. Here's what he wrote. You can search throughout the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are of yourself. And that person is not to be found anywhere. You yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserve your love and affection. That's Buddha. Well, of course, we got to go to Hollywood because, after all, they determine most of our definitions in this society. And this is Jennifer Aniston. She wrote this. I love that feeling of being in love, the effect of having butterflies when you wake up in the morning. That is special. And Hollywood says it. Of course, musicians like John Lennon write, all you need is love. This is probably my favorite definition. Favorite I put in quotes. Here it goes. Love is the feeling you feel when you feel you are feeling a feeling you feel you've never felt before. So obviously love is feeling. Let me try that one again because I don't think you got it the first time. Love is the feeling you feel when you feel you are feeling a feeling you feel you've never felt before. That's brilliant. And here's our Lord Jesus Christ. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That's a little bit different, isn't it? In fact, it's quite a bit different than what all these other definitions are. Here's a word that we use every day, many, many times, in every single facet of our society, you see the word love. But in almost all cases, love is associated with a feeling that you have, an affection, a quiver in your liver, uh, butterflies in your stomach. That is love. Well, as you certainly know, that is an extremely deficient definition of love. That is an aspect of love. Obviously, love has to do with affection and feelings. Yes, that is a part of love. In fact, the Bible uses multiple terms for love, and that is one of them. 
Another word, of course, that love has to do is, is eros, erotic love. That is part of love. That's why the Bible has given us the Song of Solomon and other passages in the Bible that speak about the love between a husband and a wife, even sexual love. But when you want to understand what love is really most about, we go to the words of Jesus. And today we're going to turn to the Apostle Paul, who reflects on the words of Jesus. In our text today, in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, we are going to encounter 30 instructions. Can you believe it? I don't know what the Apostle Paul was thinking, as if we can actually understand. There are 30 of them. He says, if you want to know what love is, here's the good, the first 30. You're going to get 30 of them now in the next 30 minutes. One a minute. 30 instructions from the Apostle Paul, all of which are designed to put flesh on Jesus' command that we're called to love one another. So you're ready for your 30? And you have to remember them all. There'll be a test at the end of the sermon for you. Not really, of course. But this is one of the Bible's most significant definitions of what love is about. Now, interestingly, this passage on love immediately follows the passage that we talked about a couple of weeks ago where the Apostle Paul spoke about spiritual gifts. And it is not by accident that Romans chapter, I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is called the love chapter, comes immediately after chapter 12 in which it talks about gifts. Why? Why, when God addresses the subject of spiritual gifts, which means God's Holy Spirit has given to each of us certain special abilities to be used to to help other people grow in their relationship with Jesus. Why, immediately after he speaks about gifts, he immediately launches into teaching about love. I think 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, because you can use the gifts that God has given you unlovingly. You can use the gifts that God gives to you in ways that are actually hurt people. They don't help them. And so whenever you speak about gifts, there's always a caution in the Word of God that you use them under the umbrella of love. But the question is again mentioned, what is love? What is it? Well, today when the Apostle Paul gives us our 30 instructions about love, he's going to break them down into three categories. The first category is how do we love people who are pretty much like us, which includes us today? How do we love the people who are sitting next to you in the pews today? That's the first thing. What does that love look like? But then he's going to turn to another subject. What does love look like to people who may not be sitting next to you in the pews today, but could be, but they're not the same as you? Maybe they're racially different than you. Maybe they're socioeconomically different than you. Maybe their lifestyle is different than yours. How do you love people who are different than you? But the real challenge is this. How do you love people who don't like you? In fact, how do you love people who despise you? How do you love people who hate you? Because we're called by God to love everyone. But people are different. Some people are like us. Some people are not like us. And some people dislike us. So the Apostle Paul in his 30 commands today 
is going to tell us how do we love in each of these three categories. Let's start with the first one. How do we love people who are like us? Now, this category, you want to apply it to the people who are sitting in the pews next to you this morning and to the people who go to First Baptist Church here. These are the words of Jesus. By this, all men, in other words, all people outside will know that you are my followers if you love one another. Now, obviously, there are many, many people in our world today who, when they look at us in the church, don't say, oh, my, they love each other, don't they? That's not what they see. What they see is, oh, those people don't like each other because they're splitting all the time. Why do we have all these different churches in Riverton, Wyoming? If they really love each other, they'd probably not do that. Jesus said, they will know you're my followers if, in fact, you love one another. So what does love look like with the people inside a healthy community of God's people? Here's what he says. Number one, love must be sincere. This is verse 9. Love must be sincere. The core of love is sincerity. Love cannot be reduced to sentimentalism, which is more normally what we do. Most definitions of love focus almost exclusively on the sentimental part of it. But when the Bible speaks about love, it starts with the word sincerity. And in fact, in the Greek, there's, it's, um, there's no verb here. That sentence, love must be sincere, simply goes, love sincere. That's all it says. And then the rest of it is going to fill out what that means. Now, the word sincere there is a word which means without play acting. So um, this is the word. The word sincerity there is used of Hollywood actors at the time that the Apostle Paul wrote this. In every Roman town at the, at the time that this was written, and I've been in many of them, scores of them, every single town has a theater. Still to this day, they're still there. And people on the stage would act in parts. They were playing parts, but they did it insincerely because they were actors. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying, don't be an actor. Now, isn't it ironic that almost all of our visions of love come from actors? Almost every impression we have of love in this society comes from actors who very believably in front of that celluloid can act as if they're loving, but when you look at their lifestyles, you know they're not very loving. They go through serial marriage after serial marriage. But they very believably can fake love in their acting. I guess you could almost translate this one. God says, don't take your cues about love from Hollywood. Don't, because those people are actors. Love can easily be faked. Don't fake it. How can it be faked? And why is it faked? Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Both the word hate and the word cling are extremely strong words in Greek. It means 
hate exceedingly and, and cling like a husband and wife sexually do to each other. That's what it means. You see, when the Bible defines love, Paul links love to truth and ethics and standards of right and wrong, which we do not do in our culture today. In fact, um, in, in our culture today, we, we, have, we have stripped love away from truth, ethics, and morality. And in fact, when you link love to truth, ethics, and morality, today you're called a hater, which is extremely ironic. Someone wrote this. Love, Paul suggests, first of all, has a moral dimension. We tend to think of love as an emotion that we have little control over. We fall into it. We drift out of it. But in the Bible, love is a matter of the will. We determine to love. You see, our society defines love emotionally. The Bible defines love ethically. Love is based on truth, ethics, and morality. But then he goes on. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Um, by, the word, by the way, this word, one another, or these words, it's two in, Eng in English. It's one word in Greek. It's used about a hundred times in the New Testament. And 60% of those are used by the Apostle Paul. What is the focus of love? We live in a society today in which people will often say that that the focus of love should primarily be yourself. But the Bible says, no, the focus of love is primarily the other. Be devoted to one another. And the term that is used for love in this case is the word that we use with, with the city that's in Pennsylvania called Philadelphia. That's the exact same word, Philadelphia, brotherly love, the city of brotherly love. The term used here when it says be devoted to one another is a word that is used for family love. Because as Christians, we should see each other as family. We, we, we love each other as family. That's really, really important. Paul implies that our love toward one another, toward people who are like us as Christians, should be like the love of an extended family. That's how we treat each other. By the way, the, the, I keep thinking of that movie back years ago, Greece. Remember the movie Greece? And as Olivia Newton-John sang the song, hopelessly devoted to you. That's kind of what God would say. That's, that's what it means to, be, to love inside the church is we're, we're hopelessly devoted to each other. But then it says, honor one another above yourselves. That's the cost. Here's what Paul says he writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. You want a, a body of Christ that works, a church family that's healthy? How do you do it? Well, you are hopelessly devoted to each other. We consider each other family, and we honor them more than we honor ourselves. But if you do that, you might run out of gas. 
And so the next verse talks about the empowerment. It says this, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. One of the easiest things that can happen if you actually are devoted to the well-being of one another is that after a while you get tired, you wear out, and you have nothing left in the tank with which to continue doing that. God knows that. He says, no, let the Holy Spirit fill your gas tank. Because remember, you're serving the Lord. And the Holy Spirit can give us the ability to love one another as family that, 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 in, in incredibly important ways. And how do we do this? Well, if you love each other faithfully, even sacrificially, if you love each other uh, being enabled by the Holy Spirit to do that, you, you might find that there you face difficulties. Every family, every church family faces difficulties. So when you face difficulties, be joyful in hope, patient when you have trouble or affliction, and be faithful in prayer. People in churches don't often meet our expectations. So what do you do? Give up on them? Ignore them? Go someplace else? No. Be joyful in hope, patient, and faithful in prayer. And then share with God's people who are in need. How do we operate toward one another in the body of Christ with people who are like us? Well, we open our hearts. We open our hands. We care for each other in very practical ways. We share with God's people who are in need. One of the interesting things it says about the early church in Jerusalem was that there was nobody who was in need. No one. And by the way, there were very many poor people in the church. There were people who, when they became Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, who the Jewish people regarded as a false Messiah. When they did that, they were, they were separated from their families. They lost their jobs. And so what did the Christians do? People like Barnabas, who was a wealthy man, he sold some of his properties so that he could give the money to the people in the Jerusalem church so there was no one in need. Nobody was needy in the church. Everybody had enough. That's quite, an opera, that's quite a testimony. And then practice hospitality. The word hospitality simply means a love of strangers. You love strangers. And if we went to the book of Hebrews right now, you have this incredible verse where the writer of Hebrews says, do not neglect to entertain strangers. Here's why. Because some of you, if you're kind to strangers, will find yourself entertaining angels and you don't even know it. I don't know about you. I don't know for myself. But I have many times in my life gone out of my way to reach out to strangers, and I'm sure you do too. But what you may not know is some of those strangers may have been angels in disguise. Really? You may well have met an angel, and you didn't even know it. If I, if someone, if, if I said to you today, um, how many of you would like to meet an angel? I think, yeah, I'd like that. Well, the truth is, you may have done so. How do you do it? You show kindness to people you don't know. Practice a love of strangers. That's what hospitality, of course, means. Now, um, so what does love look like toward people who are like us inside the church? 
Here's my definition of love. Love is a wholehearted commitment to the eternal good of another person to which one devotes him or herself sacrificially, empowered by God and following the example of Jesus. Let me say it again. Love is a wholehearted commitment. It's not fake. Wholehearted commitment to what? To the eternal good. To the eternal good of another person to which we devote ourselves sacrificially. How do we do it? Empowered by the Holy Spirit and following the example of Jesus. That's what love is. Now, love has been radically superficialized in our society. Love is primarily seen as a sentiment, a feeling, an emotion. It's linked with temporary feelings of happiness. Its mantra today is follow your heart. Love, as we know, is believably faked by actors all the time and by musicians who sing beautifully about love but don't practice love. And it's the same of pastors and Christians as well, unfortunately. We live in a society where there are effusive expressions of love that have no commitment or action behind them. Love today, as the Bible says, you can have things like selfishness, eloquence, spirituality, generosity, and even martyrdom that look like love but really aren't. Read 1 Corinthians 13. Where do we practice this love at First Baptist Church? In my opinion, the main place we practice it is in the life groups of this church. That's where we practice it. Those are the people who should be seen as family, who we care for with our hearts and our hands in many, many ways. And by the way, I've been in quite a few churches. I find the life groups of this church to be exemplary. They're good, really good. That's the first facet of love. How do we love within a a good, a good, healthy church? But that's only the first part of love. Because inside the church and outside the church, we're called to love people who are not like us. It's easier to love people who are like us. But when people are not like us, it's a bit of a challenge. How do you, how do you like people? How do you love people whose financial status is much higher than yours or much lower? How do you love people whose whose afflictions, whose sufferings are much greater than yours or far less? How do you love people whose worldview and lifestyle clash with yours? How do you love those people? That's our next question. How do we like love people who are unlike us or in a very different place in our life? And these people may be sitting in the pews next to you. And in fact, if this was a really healthy church, they would be sitting in the pews next to you. You, we would have sitting in the pews next to us, Republicans and Democrats, um, Native Americans and whatever we call the rest of us. We would have people who are very different, who are not like us. People who are are, are wealthier than we are and poorer than we are. People whose sufferings are greater than ours and people whose sufferings are far less. We would have us all together in a body. How do we love in that setting? That's the next question Paul deals with. And here's what he says. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Well, when you see that, immediately you say, well, those are not church people, are they? Have you ever read your Bible? Have you ever been alive? Where did the persecution the Apostle Paul felt, where did it come from? Almost all of it was from the inside. The Jews, his fellow people, and the Judaizers, Christians, who who wanted to impose the Mosaic law on the Christians. Most of Paul's persecution came from insiders, not outsiders, though it was ultimately the Roman government that had him executed. How do you deal with people who are not like us and don't like us? Well, curse them. No, no. Pray for them. Bless them. Don't curse them. Then it goes on. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. How do you live? How do you love people who are wildly successful and you're not? Have you ever found that difficult? What if you have the same job at work and they get promoted and you're not promoted? Or what if you know somebody who grew up with you and you're just as good as they are and they struck it rich and they've got lots and lots of money? How do you view them? You you know how you do it. What about those people who are suffering? Those people who have lost a spouse maybe or who have physical afflictions that are really, really tough and it, it dominates their life as it does for many people, even in this body. How do you... How do you love people who are suffering? How do you love people who are wildly successful and you're not? By the way, there are many verses I would like to add to the Bible, but here's one of them. Thankfully, God didn't let me write it. I would write it this way. In the real world, unfortunately, it is often easier to weep with those who weep than to rejoice with those who rejoice. One of the most difficult tests of life is to have a person who is very much like you, grew up like you, who becomes wildly successful. We, that really will test your heart. Can you, when someone is successful, can you truly, sincerely say, great, I'm so glad they're successful, truly successful. And with those who, who are suffering, can you truly weep with them? That's a test, a tough test. And then it says, live in harmony with one another. What does harmony mean? Harmony means you're singing different notes. If you're singing the same note, it's unison. But harmony means they're different notes, but they harmonize. They fit. How do we love people who are are walking to the beat of a different drummer who hear a different tune than we do, who are in the body of Christ with us at the same time? How do we view them? You better think as I think, exactly as I think. Otherwise, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. You better think politically, just as I do. I'm not going to have anything to do with you. That's not harmony. That's groupthink. That's unanimity. No, God says, live in harmony with one another. Means that we know how to create beautiful chords of music, even though we don't agree on many things. This is one of the horrible things about our our Christian churches in America today is Christian churches in America today split. Over 
over almost any issue. And the end result is everyone thinks pretty much the same. No harmony. Bunch of people singing in unison. And God says, ah, it doesn't sound so good to me. Because God says it wants us to live in harmony with one another. Well, how do you pull that off? Well, don't be arrogant, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Now, in the church to which Paul was writing in Rome, there were many, many slaves. And so in the Christian church, as they gathered together, there were slaves and there were people who had money. And of course, you know what happens in the church when you have people of different socioeconomic uh, backgrounds? They, they tend to split into different things. Remember what they did in Corinth? The slaves had to work 12 hours each day. The rich people had a lot of leisure. So the church gathered together for a potluck. And who arrives first? The rich people. And what did they do? They started eating the food. They started drinking. And by the time the poor people arrived, the rich people were drunk. And Paul said, oh, isn't this? And then guess what they did after that? They celebrated communion. This is 1 Corinthians 11. You can read it. Paul says, you've got to be kidding. You have got to be kidding. You call this a church where the rich people come early, eat all the food and get drunk? And then the poor people come, there's nothing left? And you say you're a church? Oh, you've got to be kidding. This is not a church. This is a disgrace. You better not touch the communion elements. Don't touch them because you're in trouble if you do until you stop this kind of nonsense. Don't be conceited. Don't think you're better than anybody else because in truth, none of us really are. What, what is our natural response to people who are not like us? We ignore them. We avoid them. We don't want to get caught up in their dysfunctional life. We don't even notice them. We look down on them. We tend to hang out with people who are just like us. That's not what God wants. You see, one of the most wonderful things about the Christian church that is different than almost any other organization in the world is that we don't get to choose who we love. We take everybody. And we have to learn to love people we would not otherwise associate with. We need to learn to love people we don't even like. You know what that's called? Maturity. It's called maturity. That's when you grow to love people who aren't like you. And they might not like you. And you don't like them. You wouldn't normally hang out with them. That's the beauty of the church. God thrusts us together. And we have to learn to love each other. That's a great, great opportunity. And by the way, you live in a community here. We do in Riverton where there are many different communities. Most of those don't have a lot to do with each other. Oh, how wonderful it would be to be a church that loves people even who are not alike. That's pretty rare, but very important to God. Well, there's one category left, and this is the toughest one of all. How do you love people who don't love you at all. In fact, they hate you. There's a man named uh, John Dickerson. He's written a book I, I've read a number of times. It's entitled The Great Evangelical Recession. In one of the chapters, and he's a journalist, a, a, an award-winning journalist, and also a pastor. So all he's doing is looking at statistics. And he said, one of the phenomena that you find going on in America today is that there's an increasing hatred 
of evangelicals. And you'd have to be out of your mind if you didn't see that. He wrote this, quote, The culture is not just apathetically drifting from Christianity as it did in the late 20th century. Now its leading edges are violently reacting to the grip that conservative Christianity and the religious right has held for so many decades. There is a new hatred in our world today. So how do you love people who hate you? How do you love people whose values, whose worldview, whose lifestyle are diametrically opposed to ours, who who arouse all manner of desires for revenge in you, who you would call the enemy? How do you love such people? What does God say to us as Christians regarding how we view people who do not like us at all? Well, let's see what God says. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not try to get even. Hey, what goes around comes around. Hey, what they should reap what they sow. Let's pay them back for what they did. Let's, you, you got to stoop to their level. No. God says, no. Do not repay evil for evil. Instead, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. We're not only called passively not to retaliate, we're called positively to do what's right, to do what is good. Doing good is what we're called to be. And if it is possible, this is verse 18, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, is it always possible? No. It's not even possible to live at peace with each other here. How do we know that? Well, check out Paul and Barnabas. Here are two of the godliest people that have ever walked on this planet, and they had a disagreement over John Mark. Paul thought this guy's a, a, a flake, and we should have nothing to do with him. And Barnabas said, hey, give him a second chance. Paul said, not in your life. And the two, two had a bitter disagreement, and they split ways. It's not always possible. But if it depends on you, as much as possible, you take the role, as Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. It doesn't say blessed are the peaceable. It doesn't say blessed are the appeasers. It says, blessed are those who step into a conflict and seek to make peace. If it is possible, make the focus of your life with people who do not like you to live at peace with them. That's what what God says. And do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge I will repay, says the Lord. That's from the book of Deuteronomy. So we don't take into our hands any time that we take revenge. That is not what we do. Why? Because we believe there is a God who is just, and he has given that responsibility to civil government and to himself, but never to us. Lynch mobs are absolutely abhorrent in the eyes of God. Taking something out on someone who has hurt you is not what God wants. In fact, it's an expression of faithlessness because we believe that God is just. 
God knows what's going on. Do not take revenge. The question then you might rightly ask is, well, what should we do instead and why not take revenge? Here's God going to answer it. On the contrary, instead of taking revenge, if they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to, to drink. I've been involved very minimally here at First Baptist Church with some of the outreach to the homeless people in this community, which is really a good ministry here. I have seen that some of you precious people who have reached out to these, you've been so kind. But sometimes you've not been treated very kindly. I watched it with my own eyes. What does God say? Take revenge? No. On the contrary, these people are hungry. What did I see you do? You gave them food. They're thirsty. What did you do? You gave them bodies of water. Why? Why do this? They don't like you. And they say so very openly. They don't like you. Why? Well, here's what God says. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. That sounds really bad. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to um, put hot coals on someone's head that you burn them? Well, that's an that's a, a metaphor, that's an image, which is defined this way. Acting kindly toward our enemies is a means of leading them to be ashamed of their conduct toward us and perhaps to repent and turn to the Lord whose love we embody. That's why. Because, you see, our ultimate aim is not to get them to like us or to get us them to treat us kindly. Our ultimate aim is that they would come to know Jesus. That's why we do this. Because that's really the aim of our life. And how does he sum it all up? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The command for us Christians to love extends even to those who hate us. You see, to respond in kind to people who hate us, it compromises our integrity as Christians it builds barriers to the Gospels, and it usurps the prerogatives of God alone. We are not God. We leave that to Him. So we don't respond in kind. We try to live peaceably with all people. We don't play God. We pray rather than curse people. We proactively do good to them, and we seek to represent Jesus before them. Our task is not to protect ourselves but to obey the Lord and leave the results to him. And so, how do we as Christians love one another? First category is how do we love people inside the church? And the word that the one word that, that I would pick for this section is devotion. We are devoted to the well-being of each other. We love one another. We we're devoted. Secondly, how do we love people who might be in the church, who might not be in the church, but who are very different than we are in a variety of different ways? How do we love them? Well, our goal then is to live in harmony with them. We may not sing the same note. We may not play the same instrument. We may not follow the same road. We may not believe the same things on our moral issues, but we seek to live in harmony with people who are different than we are. And how about people who just flat out despise us? They don't like us. They hate us. How do we live and love people 
who don't like us at all. And we have a lot of that in our culture today. How do we love them? The one word I think that God would summarize this is peace. We're called to be peacemakers, not troublemakers, not discord makers. We're called to be peacemakers. Devotion toward those who are like us. Harmony toward those who are different than us. And peace with those who don't like us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're not real good at loving sometimes, but that's really at the heart of who Jesus was all about and what you've called us to be. May you sear deeply into our hearts the words of of the Bible that we love because you have first loved us. May May your Holy Spirit invigorate this congregation myself included, to be people who are so aware of the the depth and the breadth and the kindness of your love to us that we would extend the same to people all around us, like us or unlike us, who like us or who dislike us. May that be a fresh way of living among us here at First Baptist Church. To that end, we ask for your help because in and of ourselves, we cannot do it. We know that. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, would you please stand for our benediction now? And um, Our command is, is simple. And I take it from the words of our Lord Jesus himself. He says, by this, people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. May you go from this place having a sense that we are loved by the Lord Jesus Christ at great cost. And as a result, we love one another. God bless you.